Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning as we continue in worship, would you open them with me to Matthew's Gospel in the second chapter, Matthew chapter 2. If you were with us last week, we began examining this former tax collector turned disciple account of the promised Christ's arrival. As a Jew and one ostracized by his people due to his occupation, Matthew had found the acceptance he longed for and the forgiveness he craved in his relationship with Jesus. And he desired for his Semitic brothers and sisters to know the same. And thus, the first thing that we saw together Matthew established for his original readers was Christ's lineage. Matthew wanted his audience to know that Jesus was the son of David, who was the son of Abraham, and therefore he fit the promised Messiah's genealogical pedigree. Second, Matthew clarified that while sharing Joseph's lineage, Jesus' father was actually God himself. This child born to Mary, who'd married Joseph, wasn't your ordinary firstborn. Jesus was God incarnate, fully God and fully human, and therefore he fulfilled all that was prophesied about the coming Messiah. Jesus is, as the slide declares, the promised Christ, which is the truth that we saw together last week and which I believe we're going to see again this morning as we resume our study of Matthew's Gospel. And so if your Bibles are open to Matthew 2, I invite you to follow along as I read from verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1, our author writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, I believe that this, this text, and in this text, Matthew communicates five further truths regarding the promised Christ and people's right response to him, which is worship. Five truths, with the first being that as the Messiah, Jesus is the king of the Jews, and therefore ought to be honored as such. As the Messiah, Jesus is the King of the Jews, and therefore he should be honored as such. And I believe that Matthew reveals this truth to us in the Magi's question. There, verse 2, as they inquire, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? These foreigners were convinced by their experiences to this point that a king had been born, a baby, 
who would one day rule Israel. Now, to their minds, how this child would fulfill this role was clearly unique and unlike any ordinary king. Because do you notice the response of the incumbent here, Herod? At this stage in his career, Herod had been called king of the Jews by Rome's senate for over 40 years. This man was well established in his position, and yet he clearly does not interpret these foreign scholars' question as regarding any of his offspring, does he? Herod's response is revealing as he passes the Magi's question on to, of all people, the clergy. Herod calls in Israel's chief priests and teachers of the law. Why? What in the world could these guys have contributed to the discussion? The Magi had asked about royal succession. Herod was the king, so surely he and he alone knew the answer to the question, but this is Matthew's point. Herod had no answer. Herod had no answer because he knew the king under investigation was no ordinary king. Herod recognized that the child referenced by the Magi was the Messianic king. And I believe that he reveals this by his rephrasing of their original question. You notice Herod didn't ask the religious leaders where the king of the Jews was to be born. Although this is how the wise men had addressed them, is it not? No, Herod inquired as to where the who? Christ was to be born. Now, that term Christ, as it's rendered here, if you have an NIV, Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. And so in verse 4, Herod's literal question is where the Messiah is being born. And and in his use of both this term and this tense, I believe that Herod was seeking a theological ruling, not an an informative response regarding this recent event. He knew what had been promised, but he clearly had no clue as to the nature of this king's rule. And, And I say that because he only asks where the Christ was to be born, to which the religious leaders direct him to the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, as well as verse 6, which reads, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. If Herod had fully appreciated the events that were transpiring, surely he would have asked, Who is the Messiah that's being born? To which the chief priests and teachers of the law then would have replied by reading further from Micah's prophecy, chapter 5, revealing how this man's origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, declared the prophet, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he, that's the Messiah, will be their peace. This king, this king wouldn't be coming into being in the womb of his mother. His existence, according to Micah, was from eternity. Or, as the Apostle John tells us in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but this Word was God. This promised king's reign wouldn't be limited to Israel. Because his greatness, Micah said, would reach to the ends of the earth. And it's a reality that we see marking the minds of the Magi, and which leads us then to the second truth that I believe we should see this morning, and that is that as the Messiah, Jesus is king over all nations and deserves to be honored as such. As the Messiah, Jesus is the king over all nations and deserves to be honored as such. You know, 
I find it interesting that Matthew opts to leave out the story of the shepherd's visit to Bethlehem, which, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, he includes. In fact, Luke, who is a Gentile, commits a significant portion of his nativity narrative to the shepherd's experience of that angelic messenger and the subsequent heavenly choir. While Matthew, a Jew, as we pointed out last week, focuses immediately on foreigners coming from the east to worship Jesus. And to this end, these magi, as our text describes them, or wise men, they originally drew their name from the title of a Persian priestly caste that had come to be used or had an important role, rather, in advising kings. And in time, that title, magi, came to refer to all learned people in that region, priests in particular who who specialized in both astrology and the interpretation of dreams. And scholars believe that at the time of Herod's reign, magi could be found all over that area. In the Roman world, particularly they were associated with the Babylonians. What's interesting is that term magos, which is the singular for magi, so just one wise man, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to to refer pejoratively to false prophets. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 6, Bar-Jesus is referenced as a magos, just like these magi. So I find it incredible that the first people Matthew informs us visit the king of the Jews are foreigners, Gentiles, the, the unclean. And yet, as surprising as this may seem, Matthew's inclusion of the Magi's visit, along with Christ's great commission to go make disciples of all nations, I believe is simply further proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And here's why. One of the, the most repeated, oft-repeated messianic prophecies was found in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 60 and verse 3, which declared, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. (laughs) So what I believe Matthew provides us with here is simply additional proof to the Messiahship of Christ that he is the king and promise fulfiller for all nations, not simply the Jews, but for all nations and churches as king, for us this morning, Jesus ought to be worshipped. His position demands all of our respect and reverence. Sadly for many, such a response as is due royalty is, is hard to muster today. It's even harder to justify in our postmodern culture of absolute equality. We struggle to show deference to others that are higher than us in their position. In instances where we would, I believe that many of us, we just don't even know how in this day and age. We're so accustomed to informal interactions with one another and communication that were we to to say have to write like a business letter or even attend like a formal dinner, most of us would have no idea how to demonstrate honor to those for whom it is due. The point here is that as king, Jesus deserves our complete devotion, respect, and honor. So, as the question that follows, how do you worship this king? Do you worship this king? And we'll come back to that former question in just a moment. But as the Messiah, Jesus is clearly portrayed as king of the Jews and king over all nations. And so he should be honored as such. And there's a third truth that I believe Matthew reveals to us in our text here. And that is, as one pastor theologian phrased it, God wields the universe to make his son known and be worshipped. God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. Can you see the the growing focus, the the, the increased attention 
on this act of worship and Christ's right to worship. This is God's great goal in all things, that his son be known and worshiped. At the conclusion of verse 2, Matthew tells us that Magi's words to Herod, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now the idea that a special star heralded the birth of famous people or events was widespread, scholars believe, in the ancient world. And thus, that to which the Magi referred would have likely been a familiar notion to Herod. However, why he had not noticed it isn't explained. Nor is the fact that none in Israel saw the star, or at least attributed to it the significance that the Magi had. Now, at the risk of missing the point of this passage, which we'll come back to in just a moment, there are three suggestions that both astronomers as well as biblical historians have put forward and continue to do so in order to explain the nature of this risen star as well as the subsequent movements that our author describes. And the first is they believe it was a comet. One commentator observes comets have long been held to herald the arrival of important figures on the world stage. And a comet visible in the western sky might very well explain the journey of these magi. But that said, no scholarship to date has been able to uncover a, a comet as being in the skies at that point in time. And so as they know from science and trajectory, there was no comets in the sky at that point in time. So that's one suggestion that's been put forth. The second is that this was what is known as a planetary conjunction. And so rather than just a single star that was evident in the sky, some scholars believe what occurred was the conjunction, the coming together of Jupiter, Saturn, all in the constellation of Pisces. And they believe this because it was calculated to have occurred back in 7 BC, and it could be interpreted to mean the birth of a king because Jupiter in the Palestinian culture of the time was considered the royal planet. Saturn reflected or represented the western lands, while the constellation of Pisces pointed toward the end times, the eschatological constellation, if you will. And so it's a plausible explanation. It's widely held by many. So we've got a comet planetary conjunction. The third proposal is that what took place was just a nova or a supernova, this massive stellar explosion, if you will. And scholars believe that this could have happened and explained the visibility for these magi of what was in the sky as well as its unique timing and placement. Regardless, the point that I believe is here for us is not to determine exactly what the magi saw, but rather to grasp the truth that the star as it's described in our text, is doing something that it cannot do on its own. It's guiding the Magi to the Son of God to worship Him. And let me just share a, a fellow pastor's word of warning. There are many I know in our world today who, who are exercised and preoccupied with how this star worked, trying to explain what took place. And beyond that, how did Jesus walk on water? How did the Red Sea part? How did Jonah survive all those days in a fish's belly? And, and, and more, how did manna fall from the sky? The moon uh, turned to blood or the sun stands still in the sky. And in all of those, he warns that this reflects, as he describes it, a mentality of the marginal. These people don't see in these events, he writes, a deep cherishing of the central things of the gospel. They miss the point of the story of Scripture, the holiness of God, the ugliness of our sin, the helplessness of men and women, the death of Christ, justification of sinners by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the glory of Christ's return, and then the final judgment. For these men and women fixated on facts, 
The point Matthew is seeking to communicate here, I believe, is often lost. We can't see the forest or the trees for the forest or however that saying goes. Where the forest is or the point is here that God is guiding foreigners to his son so that they might worship him. That's the point. And in his gospel's account, Luke reveals to us how God influenced an entire culture, the Roman Empire, so that a census might occur from, and, and ensure that a virgin pledged to be married to a Nazarene carpenter from David's line would be in Bethlehem in time for a baby to be born. And here, similarly, Matthew shows us God influencing the stars so that they might direct foreign magi to the same place at the same time so that they might worship him. Church, this is God's design, and it remains so. God desires, as Jesus declared to us in Matthew's gospel further on, chapter 24, verse 14, that this gospel, this message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. God's aim, friends, is that the nations worship his son. And this is God's desire for you today. It's his desire for your family, for your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, even the people that you dislike. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Question, do you worship Jesus? And can you declare him to be your Savior and Lord? Because God's word is clear that none can call Christ Lord unless the Father has enabled him. In other words, we can't save ourselves. We're like those magi. We have to be led to worship Christ. God has to open our eyes to the reality of his son and his word makes clear that he does so through the heard word of the gospel. When we hear how God is holy and we're not, our hearts are broken over our sin and we must repent and believe. Do you worship Jesus, King of the Jews, King of all nations whom God desires be known and worshipped? Or, this morning, do you find your heart angered by the thought, resentful even, of being described as a sinner and uninterested in worship this morning? And the fourth truth that I believe Matthew provides in our text pertains to that sentiment as he makes clear this. Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him, and he attracts opposition for those who do. Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him, and he attracts opposition for those who do. In verse 3, we read that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod viewed the child's birth as competition. He his interest in the promised Christ's arrival was solely self-serving, as our story later makes clear. He had no intentions of doing what he told the Magi in verse 80. All he wanted to do was to know where to find this threat to his title so that he could destroy him. And so the first opponent, I believe, that Matthew makes clear here for the Messiah or to the Messiah that's given us here is Herod himself. The second is composed of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Verse 4, Matthew tells us that when Herod had called them all together. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. And without hesitation, they responded in the words of Micah, as we saw together, in Bethlehem in Judea. But that was it. Having just been asked by the king where the location or where is the location of this Messiah's prophesied birthplace, and having answered Herod's question, it appears they just leave. 
And the silence that fills these ensuing sentences is simply deafening. How could these, these men have cared so little for the, something so spiritually significant? And then we say, well, it can't be because they didn't know why Herod had approached them as he had. Because verse 3 tells us that when Herod heard this, that was the Magi's purpose for coming, that he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. In other words, the whole city was rife with this rumor the Messiah had been born, the Messiah had been born. And you would think that under such circumstances, the religious leaders would have been at the front of the line to try and discern, to root out the origin of this rumor and test its veracity. But what we read about here, or more accurately, we don't read about, is the clergy's efforts to this end. It appears as if they had assisted their king, and having done so, they just went back to life as usual. They returned to their routine. Both Herod and the religious leaders had no interest whatsoever in worshiping Jesus. They were both troubled by the news that he'd been born. Herod felt deeply threatened by Christ, and therefore, in his fear, he schemed, he, he lied later. We'll see next week. He committed mass infanticide just to get rid of Jesus. The religious leaders, on the other hand, did absolutely nothing. They had no interest in worshiping the true God because Christ was a non-entity in their lives. So which type are you this morning? And if your heart, as I asked earlier, gets angry when you hear the gospel inform you of your sin, if it troubles you, then you may still be as Herod and these religious leaders were, opposed to Jesus. And if so, I pray that you might humble yourself right now and beg for God's mercy to open your eyes to the reality of who Jesus is so that you might be saved. Because there are only two kinds of people in this world, as may be distinguished by matters of eternal significance. And that's those who accept Christ, and that's those who reject Christ. Herod and the religious leaders were troubled by Jesus. They didn't want to worship him. And they opposed those who did. And thus today, we who worship Christ, we Christians, Christ's disciples, we face two forms of opposition, hostility and indifference. Now, in some instances, the hostility faced is severe, but in most cases, as in our country at least, they're rarely life-threatening. I believe that the most common form of opposition that we encounter in our postmodern American culture is that of apathy. People just don't care. <laughs> you can live out your faith as long, and there are even some instances happy that you have faith, just so long as you keep it to yourself. Don't try to impose your beliefs on me. Church, we've got to be aware of these forms of opposition and why we face them so that we will not become discouraged or grow weary in our worship. May we this Christmas take time to ponder the reason for the season, the coming of the Messiah, King of the Jews, of all nations whom God desires be known and worshipped. And to this end, may we consider just what is it to worship, which brings us to the fifth truth that I believe this text has for us, which provides us with an answer to the question that I said that we would come back to earlier, the question of what is worship? How? Do we worship? What is worship according to Matthew? Well, I believe that worship is joyfully ascribing authority and significance to Christ by means of sacrificial gifts. Worship is joyfully ascribing authority and significance to Christ 
by means of sacrificial gifts. And this definition is composed of four elements, each of which is drawn from our text. And so let me point them out to you. The first element is that of authority. Worship ascribes authority to the object being venerated. In verse 2, the Magi inquire as to where the king of the Jews has been born. These individuals, wise men, so-called, recognized the authority possessed by Christ. For the Magi, the title King of the Jews was more than a moniker. And it reflected a position and one defined by authority. It wasn't like the label that's employed by LeBron James for those who follow basketball. I don't know if he self-titled the King, LeBron James the King. and He is an amazing athlete, but there's nothing royal about King James beyond the burgers that he eats. He is simply self-titled the King. The Magi on the other hand, recognize the very real authority possessed by Christ, an authority that Herod feared, as did the wind and the waves, all of which obeyed him. Why? Because he's the king. Worship is ascribing authority. And second element, worship is ascribing significance. Verse 11, we read how on coming to the house, the Magi saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Church, I believe in this physical act, this reverent gesture, the Magi were demonstrating Christ's significance and their insignificance. He was high. They were low. He had value. They had, they were nothing in comparison. When we worship, we ascribe authority and significance to the object of our worship. And, third element, we do so joyfully. Don alluded to this as he prayed right at the end of our time of offerings. Joyfully, in verse 10, Matthew tells us that when the Magi saw the star, they were overjoyed. This is how our NIV translates verse 10. However, I, I love how the ESV renders this. If you have the ESV, then it reads, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The ESV follows the original a little more closely here, and which is why I, I love it. And it provides us with this quadruple way of saying rejoice. For your pastor who is passionate about rejoicing, one observes it would have been much to say that they rejoiced, more to say they rejoiced with joy, more to say they rejoiced with great joy, and even more to say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In other words, these guys we're demonstrating as much joy as is humanly possible. Why? Because they were on their way to see Jesus. As marked by joy as were these magi, it couldn't help but color everything they did, ascribing authority and significance to Christ. They rejoiced in his supremacy as they stooped before his manger stall I wonder often if our joy in worship reflects that of these magi. Do we see the opportunities that we have on a Sunday in the same light? Or do we interpret it in the sense that I don't have to be there, it's not required of me, so if I have nothing else, I'll go. It's not an obligation upon me, but it doesn't flow from a heart that is so in love with Jesus that I rejoice exceedingly with great joy that I might go and worship with others who share that same joy. These magi rejoiced in his supremacy, Christ's 
supremacy as they stooped before his manger stall and presented him with gifts, which is the fourth element. Worship is joyfully ascribing authority and significance to Christ with sacrificial gifts. Now, in keeping with Christ's kingship, the gifts which are described here aren't intended to provide for or to meet the needs of King Jesus. Such gifts would be an insult to a king, any king, not to mention the king of the universe. Further, these gifts don't serve the purpose of bribing said king. Because unlike Herod, Deuteronomy 10.17 informs us that God takes no bribes. So, what then is the purpose of these gifts? And, and one scholar describes them as, and I love this, as intensifiers of desire for Christ himself. And he goes on and he compares such gifts to fasting, to the act of fasting. He explains that when you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I have not come to you for your things, but for you yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more, not things. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. Church, is this how you worship Christ? Do, you, do we give him gifts to demonstrate our desire for him over stuff such, in such a way as to show our dependence upon him over ourselves? Or do our gifts more often resemble royal care packages where we put together this, this nice offering for Jesus that will help him get his gospel to the nations? I pray that you don't think for a moment God needs your money to accomplish his mission. And so as you pray about how God would have you give in worship this month, this every week, don't give to aid God. Give joyfully to ascribe authority and, and significance to Him such that your gift intensifies your desire for Him over the things that we so often hold so close. Church, might God awaken in our hearts a hunger for Christ this Christmas? And may we be able to separate, to, to strip away, to single out the reason for true joy this season. May we say, may this be our prayer, prayed from all our hearts. Lord Jesus, you're the Messiah, the King of Israel, and all nations. One day every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that you're Lord. God, you wield the world to see that you're worshipped. Therefore, whatever opposition I may find, I may face, I joyfully ascribe authority and dignity to you and bring my gifts to say that you alone can satisfy my heart, not these. May this be true of us, church. May this be true of us.